Welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. Season two of Right Medicine is brought to you by CME Palooza, the bestest and freest online event for the CME community. Plus, you get two incredibly suave gentlemen. Okay, one incredibly suave gentleman. I'll leave it to you to figure out who that is. The fall agenda for CME Palooza is out now. CME Palooza, where the CME community hangs out. My guest today is Elizabeth Franklin, Associate Professor in the School of Health-Related Professions at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Elizabeth teaches research, communications and health policy for the Doctorate in Health Administration degree program. And we've worked together on research projects for the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions, and we share a love of qualitative research. Elizabeth shares her considerable knowledge about online learning and interprofessional learning in the state of Mississippi and draws on a deep well of teaching in high school, community college and university settings. She shares strategies today to support engagement in online learning and gets into the nitty gritty of software integrations that make online interactions fun. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and I'm here today with the wonderful Elizabeth Franklin, who is an associate professor in the School of Health-Related Professions at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. So great to see you again, Alex. Oh, it's great to see you as well. And we first really met when we worked together in the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions Research Committee uh, several years ago. And we've done quite a bit of work together on various topics. So it's great to be here today talking about the work that you do in continuing medical education, continuing professional development. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing lately particularly in the online space. But let's start with, if you could share with listeners who you are and what you do. Well, I am Elizabeth Franklin. I am associate faculty in, it is a school of health-related professions where we're housed, but it's a doctor of health administration degree that I, is my faculty appointment. And so I teach research, communications, and part of the health policy course in this program. It's a wonderful program preparing healthcare leaders, and we really need those now. So we're very proud of, of our graduates and, and what they do when they leave us. Um, I also, 25% of my job actually is to help with students, staff, faculty, clinicians, not their um, CPD, continuing professional development. 
Now, we do have a CE office that I was the director of for four years before I came here for full-time faculty work. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But I work very closely with the director now. She actually is a DHA graduate, a graduate of our program. She's mm, a very close friend, and we enjoy working together. So we have a lot of collaborative projects. That's wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about what the focus is of the continuing professional development that you provide education on? Sure, yes. I'll talk about for students and then what I do with the CE office for accredited CE, CME. For students, we are trying to really get them used to the fact that lifelong learning is essential. And so we develop some used to be in person and some were hands-on skills type things. Now we have worked with vendors and videographers and things to actually make online offerings for continuing professional development for students and staff and faculty who want to learn about things maybe that were not covered in the formal curriculum. The AAMC does a survey every year of medical students when they graduate and ask kind of what areas they wish they had learned about that they really need more information about. And it varies each year, but policy is one. Mm -hmm. Business practice is another, how to manage a business. And then this is interesting, but nutrition is the other one. We know that that has a lot to do with disease management and wellness. And those who graduate often don't really understand the importance of that. And they admit that, you know, and they talk about that in the survey. So uh, those are the kinds of things we try to kind of use as a needs assessment. We actually have one on the importance of breastfeeding. So it's an interprofessional course that nurses can take and, you know, pharmacists and and dentists. And that's a very important part of that. So um, to learn more about the importance of that and convey that to their patients. Um, We have one called the insurance patchwork, and it does teach them about policy, why some people fall through the cracks, why they come to the Jackson Free Clinic because they have no insurance. Uh, Many of our students don't really understand that. And so to be more empathetic with their patients, that kind of education is, is necessary. We have one on recognizing child abuse that they may see. So if they're in emergency room rotation and they see that, um, they can recognize that and how to report. Mm -hmm. Um, We have another one that is in development, but very important. And it's I never thought about this until someone mentioned it, but was it's how to do an oral cavity exam. And all students need to do that. So these are just areas that are sometimes left out of the classroom, but are very important as well. My work with the CE office is, is great fun because some of the things that I mentioned are also provided for clinicians. So the breastfeeding one, for example, offers accredited CE. So I work with her to make sure um, on our learning management system, the instructions, the, the COI information, all that is clear for our, our learners on the front end. Uh, that we also, this is exciting, have developed a course called Navigating the Online Teaching Environment Note. And this also offers accredited CE. And this is for clinicians and faculty who had to very quickly transition from in-person, hands-on to an online remote environment Mm -hmm. and had no experience with that. So 
We fashioned that, we designed that after the Quality Matters rubric, which covers eight areas of utmost importance to be successful in an online course development uh, for faculty. And that has been very popular. A lot of people have, have claimed CE for that. So it's really fun to work with all the students and um, accredited CE through the CE office as well. There's a lot of rich material there. I'm struck by what you were saying about the CE course focusing on online learning. I interviewed um, several oncologists uh, in late fall, early winter of uh, 2020, and that was one of the things that they uniformly talked about was that when they had to move online or into kind of virtual consultations, you know, early in 2020, especially in community settings, you know, they didn't have any training. They were, you know, a lot of people were basically told, here's Doximity, here's WebMD, have at it. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it's encouraging to hear that that kind of education is going to be offered. And and the other courses that you were talking about, well, they really hit the social determinants of health, mm-hmm. don't they? And Mississippi is a state that right. needs to address that. <laughs> right. How did you find your way into, you know, academia? First of all, and continuing professional development in particular. I love this question. And I listen to your podcast and I love the variety of answers. I was just listening to Scott Cobers and I think it was episode four. And he, he said it very clearly. Nobody chooses to get into this. Right. Profession. Not that they don't like it. It's just there's no degree for it. There's no real preparation on the front end for it. Um, and it's and pretty so, subterranean. Right, <laughs> right. Some people think that the CE job, CPD, is, is basically event planning. Um, but no, I have an MED and a PhD in higher education leadership. So I taught at the high school and community college level for a long time, 28 years or so. And our director of assessment here or um, academic she does all the accreditation for the whole, all the schools here, was in my PhD program. And one November, I was teaching and I got a call from her and she said, would you consider a a career change? And I was kind of getting burned out on, you know, (laughs) high school and community college teaching. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, yeah, what are you thinking about? And so there was an opening here Actually, it was an education liaison between IT and faculty. At that time, they had a very hard time communicating their needs. One did not speak the same language. They got frustrated with each other. So it was a, it was called, the position was a solution strategist. And, and mainly it was a, akin to a program manager that helped faculty in need of technological uh, tools, assistance, help, software, those type things. And that was quite fun. And I loved it. But at the end of that year, my same friend said the continuing medical education director job, the director was retiring and that position was open. Would I please apply? And I did and um, was hired there. That position here is a faculty position. So you you have to teach a course or two in a program here Um, and be the CE director. And so I began teaching in this program, in the DHA program at that time to keep my faculty position. 
I loved it. You know, I, I love teaching. I love education. I, I, I love to watch learning happen. And so in 2017, four years later, a, a full-time faculty position came open in this program and I couldn't turn it down. But I love CE so much that I ask our, actually the dean of the school and our vice chancellor of academic affairs kind of collaborated and he pays 25% of my check and I do CPD. So that what I was talking about earlier is through the academic affairs office with him. So right. that's, that's what I do. That's a very interesting story and very, very heartening to hear that there's, there's kind of local support for making, you know, you've talked about friends that you work with and people that you work with as friends. Mm -hmm. So it's very heartening to hear that there's that network of people who are looking out for each other and growing local talent. That's what I'm hearing when you, when you share that story. You're doing qualitative research already. <laughs> no, we're going to talk about that. And in fact, one of the things I miss most about being in an academic setting is is teaching and, and working with students. But you talked about the new course that's being offered on moving online. And recently you presented work at the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions, one of their learning labs, on that whole kind of process of moving courses online and how to optimize online teaching and learning. Can you talk a little bit about what online learning has meant for you in the last, you know, 15 months or so in particular? Of course, our program is fully online. So since I've been teaching in this program, I've learned how to successfully teach online and stay engaged. And, you know, the goal is that an accrediting bodies and everything will say and require that you prove that you have pretty constant interaction with the students and interaction, they have interaction with content and with the faculty and with each other. So there's peer-to-peer contact, just like in a classroom. And the thought was, we never want an online course to be like the old-fashioned um, correspondence course where you got a packet in the mail, you read this content, you filled out something, you wrote a paper, and you sent it back. And there was very little interaction. You know what the faculty looked like or, or really who they were. So to avoid that, learning management systems now um, and even homegrown ones have ways that you can very easily facilitate interaction in those three areas that I mentioned. I was in the faculty meeting in March of 2020, sitting with PT, physical therapy faculty, OT faculty, um, HIM faculty is also here. Um, All the medical laboratory sciences are housed here, and they are very hands-on, as you can imagine. Yeah. They were sitting all around me when our dean said, you will now be teaching remotely. So talk with whoever you just got to figure out how to do it and and I saw the look on their faces they were panicked Mm -hmm. they want to be good faculty members they want to prepare their students for working with patients but they had never delivered content or interacted with students really using anything other than face-to-face and so of course we offered to help them in any way we could and we did But I'm also on a committee here called the eCampus Committee that really does focus on monitoring and providing the needs for online programs. And so a subcommittee of that committee 
convened and developed this note course for faculty uh, as quickly as we could. And so that is a resource for them. And they may, for example, not need help in one area like interaction with students, but they do need help with how to make it accessible to all students. And so that's one module that they can just go to and get what they need. So it's a one-stop shop a toolbox for um, anything that they may need to know when they when they develop and deliver content online. And, and my thought was, when I saw those panic faces, we do this all the time, and we are evaluated all the time and go through program reviews. And one of the courses that I teach was certified through Quality Matters. That's a peer reviewer from outside and to inside and so we have to make sure that it's very, very good um, in mm-hmm. all areas. And so my thought was, we do this for academic programs. I know that CPD is going that way. You know, that's the first thing that popped in my mind. What is Vicky going to do in the CE department? What am I going to do with students who have a year-long series of in-person IPE activities planned and we can't do that mm-hmm. anymore? So I thought then the concepts that we use for teaching online well, we can use and teach those who are delivering CPD so that it's not just a barrage of recorded lecture videos that that are just thrown out there, that there is some component of interactivity, of follow-up, of stop and reflect. Um, All those things that we use in academia can be used in continuing professional development as well. So it sounds to me as though you were in a really pivotal position in order to kind of make that connection between the work that you were doing in online learning and a real immediate material need amongst colleagues in the wider school. If you hadn't been in that position, what do you think would have happened? Well, you know, I'm not the only one that teaches in online programs, but I do think it took some of us to come along beside you know, the hands-on in-person faculty to say, we're here to help. Um, Here are some resources. I can't imagine what that felt like because when you first start, it's hard to get your head around how to really teach when you're not with somebody if that's all you've Mm -hmm. ever done. Mm -hmm. Um, it's It's a hard concept to even think about until you see it in action. Um, If you've never taken a course online, then developing one and teaching that way is extremely hard. And so, you know, we had the support of our dean and we kind of stopped what we were doing and offered to help them. And then the eCampus committee, and and I will say instructional designers, um, for those people who have the resources to hire an instructional designer, Mm -hmm. I would say they're so, so, so valuable um, in this process. They know how things should look, where it should go, mm-hmm. the sequence it should be presented, um, those type things that a lot of us just just don't know. So sometimes we would get things, content in a course, but the instructional designers would say, we have to make this easy and visually attractive for the students, and this is how you do it. Don't indent five times. You know, Make sure your headings are this font. And again, I go back to the accessibility part. They helped me with that because that was a thing that I really had not given much thought to um, Mm -hmm. is everything is going to be remote 
what about the elderly physician who may have trouble seeing online? Well, they said you don't use colored fonts and you don't put a photo in there without the alternate text so that, you know, that's in there. And, and just little things that could tweak a course that could make learning so much easier for people who have accessibility um, issues. So things like that that were not at the fore when remote teaching became so universal, we had to start thinking about everybody. No, that makes total sense. Uh, one of the things that comes to mind when you were when you were speaking there is, you know, a lot of people in the continuing professional development world at the moment, I guess in lots of different settings, actually, you know, they're talking about Zoom fatigue. Because right. because what a lot of people did was move live content online and really kind of, you know, use Zoom mostly for right. that. But you've been teaching and designing and delivering online education for a while. So you must have evaluation material that tells you about what are the fatigue points mm-hmm. in online learning? Because knowing some of that would be helpful for those in the continuing professional development community who are still struggling with that question of, how to create online content that isn't going to wear people out and is actually going to be effective in terms of learning? That is a great question because I think good educators and good clinicians try to get into the skin of their learners and their patients. So I really tried to do that. And the other day I was thinking about a faculty clinician, a teaching clinician, So he comes to work in the morning or she, and they have to teach remotely. They either recorded their lecture and they put it on our management system, or they wake up and they do a lecture or whatever to medical students, you know, remotely over over Zoom or, or whatever. And then they go to their patients and they're working with patients as they can, but then they've got to turn to the screen and do the electronic health records and notes, those type things. And then they're lacking CME credits and they need to finish that. So they log on to our, you know, CE Central site here. And let's say that the offering they need is just a recorded lecture video. How much can we expect them to actually absorb and learn from that after a full day of watching the screen, except for a few minutes when they're doing patient work? So that's why the interactivity, the reflection, the stop, the doing more synchronous things instead of recorded are really quite necessary if this type of learning continues. Um, And so there are lots of ways to do that depending on what technology you have. But if it's synchronous and live, you know, use that comment box, use those breakout rooms, use the whiteboard that you have right there in front of you. And if it is a lecture, I just vetted a software that does great interactive videos and they can be recorded videos. So you can set a time stamp kind of thing and have a conversation. So while the person is talking, other learners can hop in and say, hey, that's an interesting point. What do you guys think about that? And then someone else can hop in and sort of have a give and take during the lecture, even though it is recorded. And of course, quizzing can be done just to kind of keep people away and engaged Mm -hmm. and and a pretest that helps them know what they're looking for and what's important. Um, All those good practices for education, we can use 
in the CE space for medical folks as well. And and I think it takes time, it takes learning, it takes there is a learning curve, but but it's necessary really if we want really robust learning activities and a lot of learning to happen. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of gold there. Are there any other tips and tricks that you would recommend to optimize online learning for busy clinicians that you know listeners in the continuing professional development world might do well to use? You know, the main objective should be some sort of interaction with, as I said, all three of those components with the content. So if you have an interactive quiz, that's interaction with the content. So you can kind of gauge what's going on there with the actual faculty member, the presenter, if there's a way to do a synchronous session later after so that you can have Q&A, you can have just some feedback from the learners, not necessarily at that time, but just at a time that's convenient for the speaker. I was talking to one of my CE colleagues in Pennsylvania in the MAGNI group, and she said that they really have looked at this whole COVID time with the glass half full uh, because they have gotten speakers that they would not have been able to afford because of travel and honoraria and things like that. So it's much cheaper now. It's it's affordable to ask them to just sit down on their lunch hour in a Zoom meeting and address uh, learners. And so that I thought that was really interesting. And she said one time they had a faculty member because of the time zone had to record his lecture, his information, his PowerPoint. But then he was, at a later date, he set aside time for those learners to come back and Q&A with him, to chat with him, to do comment box stuff with him. And that was just the best of all possible worlds because they had time to actually think about the content, process it, and then get back with the presenter later. Um, And so... I just thought, you know, that's a great, very positive way of looking at that. But but being innovative and creative is what we need to continue to do because the fatigue of just staring at a screen is not going to get any better. Mm-hmm. I, I hope it does, but <laughs> it doesn't look like it will be very soon. So just keeping that in mind and understanding the needs of the learner are very important. Absolutely. And I think we're beginning to see in the literature some studies that are parsing out what some of the challenges with, you know, staring at a screen all day are. And I do think I love that example of the faculty kind of jumping back in to do a live uh, response to learners after their presentation. One of the things I hear a lot from physicians that I interview for various projects is having that access to experts both within and outside of your practice setting is kind of becoming more and more important because, you know, I guess there just isn't the time for people to have those kind of curbside consults that Mm -hmm. perhaps were more a feature of clinical practice even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's something that we're going to see growing in in the online space. You've talked a couple of times about stepping into the shoes of learners, of clinicians. And I think that takes us to qualitative research. And I know that you're a proponent of qualitative research in education. And education is actually one of the areas, and health too, where qualitative research methodologies have really kind of expanded as a way to, you know, collect 
credible and reliable insights over the last five to 10 years. And we've worked on some projects together for the Alliance in a qualitative approach. What draws you to qualitative? I am so glad you asked this question. This is where I get really kind of excited um, because I got my PhD in kind of tells my age, but um, in 1998. And at that time, all the research courses, stats courses were, you know, when we talked about analysis, we did all the ANOVA sisters, you know, Mancova, ANOVA, ANCOVA, all those things. And we didn't really get to anything qualitative unless maybe there was a question on a survey or a questionnaire that says, what else would you like to tell us? Or if there was an other, a text box that said that, but but there was really no very formal, transparent way of analyzing words to me that I was exposed to. And I know that qualitative research can be dated all the way back to the 70s. But I think in the past few decades, it's really, as you said, become more popular and more understood. But qualitative research to me can bring life to quantitative can bring life and meaning to numbers. And I really do believe that a very robust analysis of qualitative data tells clinicians, tells researchers, tells policymakers much more than a list of summarized numbers or a table of numbers. I know that's important. And so we often tell our students that mixed methods research is kind of where they need to go so that the quantitative can kind of fill the gaps of qualitative and vice versa. But pure qualitative research to me is, I don't mean to sound overdramatic, but it's its almost like poetry. It really tells us so much about what we're asking. And in fact, we can get information about things that we did not ask and never thought we would understand. It really tells a story about an experience, a perception of someone, and that's really what we need to know in a lot of cases. So I just read an article about a, it was a qualitative study about the experiences of women that came into the emergency department thinking or that they were having a miscarriage. And they would often say that the emergency department experience was the worst of it all, even the treatment afterwards, those type things. And so the researchers wanted to find out why. And that's what qualitative research can do. Um, we know they're not happy with it on HCAP scores and things like that, but we, we need to know why in order to fix it. So they spoke to several women who had had that experience and they developed you know, four or five themes around miscommunication and misunderstanding of what was going on and conveying that well to the mom. Um, and then in qualitative research, often, well, usually a quote kind of goes with a theme or sub theme to kind of support that. And one of the quotes was that the lady came in bleeding and didn't even know she was pregnant. And then she heard a doctor on the phone telling someone else that this woman had been pregnant. So that was the first time she wow. heard that. Yeah. So the experiences that they conveyed were, were not good, but they gave the researchers good, very clear information about how to fix that. 
And so we wouldn't have gotten that if there was a, on a scale of one to five, how satisfied were you with your experience in the emergency room? And so it's very rich. It's very deep and detailed. And what I like about it, it's very nuanced. So if you are doing a, say, an interview to to collect qualitative data and someone rolls their eyes or they chuckle or they refuse to answer the question, that tells you a lot of information that you may not have gotten on some quantitative tool, um, data collection tool. So I absolutely love it. I feel like we learn a lot in the health professions with qualitative, especially from the perception of the patient. And I know that is becoming more and more important. The ACCME, you know, in the commendation criteria gives you, for lack of a better word, extra brownie points for including the patient in the planning and delivery of CME. And we really when we do that, we're doing qualitative research. When we have a panel of patients that are describing what happened to them and how they dealt with it, we're learning a lot. Um, And so I, I just really, I can't say enough about the value of qualitative research, especially in the health professions and in continuing education. Well, we can talk about this later, but there's a in my opinion, a great need for qualitative information when we develop things like um, needs assessments. And during a CE event, you can do breakout into focus groups and get very detailed information about the content that's being delivered and what are their experiences with that information. And then after, very strong qualitative research opportunity there for since you learned this um, information, what are your experiences as you put this into practice? How have you seen patient reactions change? Um, and so that is just very rich. And I know that it's time consuming and not a lot of CE staff may have people with them that understand how to analyze qualitative data so that it's very transparent and trustworthy using peer right. coders and member checking and things like that. But that's just an education of staff that I think we could make available. Yeah, I do hear from people, you know, who share that view of the value of qualitative, but kind of get stuck at the implementation and the analysis in particular. And I really appreciate that story about using focus groups during a CE event, almost as doing kind of double duty. So the focus groups become an opportunity for the learners to reflect on what they're learning, but also an opportunity for the providers, the education providers to collect data about some of the challenges and some of the um, experiences that learners have in thinking about how they might implement what they've learned. And in fact, kind of working on a project at the moment, interviewing uh, oncologists. And a couple of them have said, and this happens commonly in lots of different projects, a couple of them have said at the end of the interview that part of the value in participating in that kind of exercise gives them that opportunity to reflect on Mm -hmm. their practice. And, you know, you're talking about reflection earlier as such an important aspect of learning. So there are different ways to think about the value of qualitative research beyond simply gathering data. The downside, it it does take more time. (laughs) You have to sit and talk to people and listen and journal about what you're doing and and those type things, which is more timely. But 
you know, I think with more training, more and more people who understand the value of it, I, I think that could and maybe should be a, a more common practice than we have now. And are there particular places where you see qualitative insights as being particularly helpful in the continuing education space? I do. And as I mentioned earlier, it's the experiences of, of both the provider, but I think as important or maybe more important is of the patient. Because when we talk about practice change, we know that the end game there is for better patient outcomes. And just quite frankly, you know, HCAP scores are, are tied to reimbursement and things like that. So we do want the patients to be satisfied in a lot of areas, how we communicate to them, um, how we teach them the information that they need to know to go home and manage their illness. And so that would be very useful. So a, a recent project we did with a group of OBGYN um, providers here is we knew that there was a problem with a perceived stigma of treatment of obesity, obese patients that came to our department. And so we did a focus group with patients who came because of some other, it was like a support group or whatever. So it was like a convenient sample of patients and talk to them about how they were treated. Um, and they had quotes from providers. They had scenarios that they will never forget. And they shared that with us. Mm -hmm. um, and then we paired that with some quantitative data, some testing, some questionnaires to the providers and sort of put all of that together and came up with an educational solution for the providers that, you know, educated them on patient experience as it relates to how they treat an obese patient. And then, you know, some of the providers said things like, we just know that they're not going to be compliant. So sometimes we skip some of the education. And so if they're very open with you when you're asking them those questions, you know, you can really get a lot of good insight into what can be done. So that in itself is a needs assessment really for them there. And then, you know, the follow-up is so, so important. And I think qualitative data on collected from them actually would be much more robust than that three to six month survey that says, did you change your practice? Yes. Or no. Right. Right. And when you're working with qualitative data, when you're doing this kind of work, are you doing that all in-house or do you partner with other organizations? Or Because I think a lot of people in the continuing professional development world, even if they're interested in this, would be thinking, well, where do I start? Right. Well, start in-house for sure. And, you know, even some people think that qualitative research project does not have to be approved and reviewed by IRB, but it does. Um, it is research. And so when you interact with humans, you're, um, some people say that is human research. <laughs> and so um, we're collecting information from them. So start in-house. Like I said, I think this is a great way to do a needs assessment. When you have that first planning meeting, treat it like a focus group before you dive into, oh, I know a speaker that can speak on this. Well, mm -hmm. that might not be a need. And so knowing really kind of in, in a rich format, you know, what the needs are straight from the, the mouths of the providers, I think is, is really quite good. And you know that the editor of the JSEP, the Journal for Continuing Education and Health Professions, is a qualitative researcher. So right. those of you out there who do qualitative research, 
don't be afraid to send your work in to that journal because that is very accepted. That type of, of research is. And I think more and more journals are. I mean, there's a whole journal of qualitative research in the health professions. Right. And so don't be afraid of it. There are ways that you can collect and analyze your data and it be done with much transparency, trustworthiness. I hesitate to use the word validity because that's used so much with quantitative data, but there are measures that prove um, your research was done well and you know, can be replicated and all of those things that we look for in strong research, even in the qualitative space. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing all those insights. We've talked about online learning. We've talked about accessibility and tips and tools to optimize online learning. We've talked about qualitative research and its value in the continuing education space. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to address before we wrap up? Well, you know, I don't need to say this, but the last year and a half have been quite difficult for every human being. I noticed this with our students. We just had a conversation this morning about, in the past, our interactions with students was very academic. It was, you know, critical feedback on their writing or, um, you know, a project they were doing. But it seems the in the past year or so, um, our interactions with our students and our learners in, in other situations, even in CE, even students, it has necessitated more counseling type interactions and softening of how we criticize each other and our students. That's all necessary, but it's a very interesting time for us all. And our emotions sometimes are are such that we don't even realize things are going on that really are. And so just that one thing that you throw at somebody that's an extra criticism or an extra job or an extra duty that they need to do might be that tipping point that, you know, just puts them in a state that's not what we want. So I guess from my point of view, just being considerate and kind and understanding and maybe backing off of the pressure a little bit is just a good thing for us to use now and forever, really. And if it took this to kind of make me more, more cognizant of that, then this was a good thing. You know what I mean? Not, not medically yeah. or, or anything like that. But if we learn lessons from this in terms of how we teach, how we interact, how we deal with patients, then I think we need to try to do that and not forget what we've learned as we go forward. And so making somebody look at a screen for hours and hours at a time and expect them to actually perform or do well on any kind of assessment that just may not happen these days. So, so being creative, being innovative, being funny, being understanding, just being a human and expecting everybody else to be that way too, I think is, is a lesson that we all should learn. Humanizing learning. I love that. Dr. Elizabeth Franklin, thank you so much for sharing time with us today. Thank you, Alex. Great. Elizabeth commented how interactions with her students and continuing education learners in the last 18 months have engendered deep humanizing and a softening of how feedback and constructive criticism is provided to learners. Consideration, 
kindness and empathy go such a long way in how we engage with each other in learning spaces. But in this new, increasingly virtual world, these characteristics, as well as being creative, innovative, and yes, funny, are becoming even more important. I think we can all relate as many of us continue to work from home, juggling children, dogs, caregiving, tight spaces and other challenges. And yet you continue to show up in the continuing healthcare education space because you want to support your learners, create education that stimulates practice change for the better and improve patient outcomes. This is why Right Medicine exists to share stories, expertise, and tools that hopefully resonate and support the important work that you do. Thank you for connecting with Elizabeth and me in this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and or leave a review on your podcast listening platform. That helps us deepen our connection even further. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Season two of Right Medicine is brought to you by CME Palooza, the bestest and freest online event for the CME community. Plus, you get two incredibly suave gentlemen. Okay, one incredibly suave gentleman. I'll leave it to you to figure out who that is. The fall agenda for CME Palooza is out now. CME Palooza, where the CME community hangs out.